Hi, I'm Carol Kenyon, which doesn't matter at all because we're going to pray. Perhaps you didn't hear the part where I said, which it doesn't matter at all. Did you pray with me? Yeah. Amen. That's the end of the sermon, too, seriously. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are light and that you are salt. And thank you for these simple words that probably bring up real different images these years later. So we ask you tonight to wrinkle up the time for us and to take us back or for you to just transcend it. But I ask that we get to get a glimpse of what you meant and see what it means for us tonight. Thank you for that privilege. Thank you that your word is so timeless, God, and that we get to read it in English in your name. Amen. I'm always excited to share with you from the word of God, which means I'm excited tonight. Figure drawing was a, re- a required course when I was a freshman in art school. And so I showed up fall quarter, a 17-year-old little Christian girl from a tiny town in New York State, at 8 a.m. on the very first Monday of the quarter. I had my brand-new freshman toolbox. It was red, and it was filled with a whole bunch of new drawing pencils, which I had sharpened and tried not to jiggle as I walked across the quarter mile. Some charcoal sticks I knew not what for, but I bought them because it was on the list. And my very favorite thing, a kneaded eraser. You've got to get one of these because they're a lot of fun. I had waited and waited for this day. I was nervous to see how the skills that I had acquired and hopefully honed during my my high school years, how were they going to hold up now that I was out here against who knew how many other art students. My body tensed with anticipation. See, I've been doing that for a long time. I'm like this a lot. I went into the studio, and I found an easel. I remember I was kind of in the back. And I opened up the first page of my my large newsprint pad. And at this point, I do not like newsprint. I never have. But I silently forgave the college because they were the college and I was the student. And I thought they must have a reason. Then in came the professor who introduced to us the elements of a gesture drawing. Now, I had never heard of a gesture drawing. So I was in. I wanted to listen, figure out this. And then I wanted to master it quicker than the other people, right? So here's the rules of a gesture drawing back at RIT where I went. No more than 30 seconds could be spent on any one of these drawings because our model was going to regularly change poses. So if you weren't done, you weren't done. The speed of these required quick attention to the overall pose. We had to figure out where the weight was born so that it would, that it would look right. We had to figure out how the limbs related to the torso. We were to draw what we saw Not what we thought we already knew. And that was tricky because I know there's two arms, right? But maybe I'm only going to see one. Draw what you see, not what you know. I know that these two legs are the same size, right? Or roughly the same size. But if something is foreshortened, then one's not going to look the same size on my drawing. Draw what I see. Draw what I see. Yeah, the model has two hands, but right now I can only see one. When it's coming like this, they look like little bananas. They don't look like fingers, but draw what it looks like. Draw what I see. Okay, I was still ready. I could still do this. And now the model entered the room, and he stepped to the middle of the room, surrounded by 29 freshman art students and me, the eager one. He was a skinny, hippie kind of a guy who probably welcomed the extra cash. I would never know for sure because he didn't speak. And then my world shifted pretty dramatically for me. To my utter astonishment, this model dropped his clothes. And he stood before us wearing only what God had given him. And somehow I had not expected such a sight on my first day of art school. So I proceeded with the assignment, right? 
Mine was a shaky gesture drawing. For all I knew, this was completely ordinary to all those other freshman art students, right? They did this all the time. I didn't want them to know that I didn't. And as the drawing class evolved over the coming weeks, I came to appreciate the wisdom of this, of this approach. Now, we didn't always have this thin guy. I wasn't there to master what this guy looked like. We drew men and women who came in different sizes and shapes. We learned that the underlying skeleton had some consistencies per gender, and that there were some things that were same all the way across. But then we found out what things could vary, and they could vary greatly. You know, the tone of the skin, like how, how much in shape they were could, share, could vary. The size, you know, tall, thin, uh, short, but underneath it kind of all looked the same, and then it made sense to me. How could we ever hope to accurately draw a figure if we didn't know what it was we were drawing. Now, I had drawn the opposite of this my whole life, right? But now I thought, how could I intelligently draw a sleeve of an arm if I didn't know what the arm was doing underneath? If I didn't know how it twisted or how it connected, or there's two bones up here, that's how it can do this, or where it became the shoulder. The torso and the pelvis is so interesting, how it twists and how it bears weight. It's kind of exciting, obviously, to me. I've mused about this hundreds of times, and I'm not exaggerating, I mused hundreds of times over the years since then. I thought about how uninformed would it be to draw a character or a person without knowing this. It made my old way seem absurd to me. If my drawing of a person is built of independent parts like a sleeve or a, a sock sewn to a knee or sewn to a shirt and it's all just stitched together and then a head is stuck on the ends and the arms and the, the feet and the hands are stuck on other ends, it's going to look a little Frankenstein-y. How much more logical is it to begin with what's underneath than hanging the clothes on top of these bones and on top of these skins and on top of these muscles and seeing then how the, how the drapery is going to hang and fold and tense and relax with the body that's underneath. Tonight, we're going to listen in as Jesus talks to his disciples and a crowd of followers, regular guys like us, sitting on the side of a mountain. Last week, we looked at the beginning of this famous sermon of Jesus's through Matthew's eyes, and we saw Jesus lay the groundwork regarding how to live this way, his way, the way that we were created to live. Jesus, the creator, made us in his image, and he knows how the form looks underneath the clothes. And on this mountain, Jesus reintroduced the law to the Jews, the law that they had known for generations. But now that he was here on earth among them, and he brought with him the kingdom of God, these laws looked different. They hung into the, to them in what was a new way. The law before Jesus was like the clothes drawn first, before seeing the figure. And lots of times things looked stitched together, which makes them kind of ill-fitting. So Jesus told his people how the clothes, the law, the way that we conduct our lives, are supposed to hang. He showed them the form underneath. He revealed to them the very heart of God. And when he hung the law, the how-tos of this life, on top of God's heart, they fit differently. They now presented and functioned the way that they were meant to hang, though people had grown accustomed to the bad drawings. And so this new but true way seemed very foreign to them. It's interesting because tonight my hope was to wear like one of those ear mics 
It, it looks like an orthodontic headgear kind of a thing. But it turns out he was going to have to staple gun it to my head because it wasn't the right size. And we tried wrapping it, and I thought maybe I could attach it to my glasses. Finally, we realized that's not going to work. I would have to, like, balance it. So then we tried a lapel mic, and, well, I don't have a lapel, so that didn't really work. And finally, we ended up with a handheld. And it's the same reason as this. If I had used one of the other two mics, they would have been ill-fitting, and I would have been more worried about, am I going to drop it or lose it, or do I have to do this? But like a good set of clothes, this one, which I'm used to, will move when I need to, and I'm not going to think about it as much. So anyway, here's Jesus. Remember last week, the very first blessed, the blessed R's? They, de- they describe the natural development of a child of God. Now, if you have a kid, you're going to know this. Though every child is different, across the whole of humanity, a human baby will follow a certain order of development as they grow. And these benchmarks kind of show or prove the health of that child. In the same way, those who are true children of God will have in common certain postures, which then can't help but produce a heart which is turned in the same direction of Jesus's. So in these first few verses of Matthew 5, Jesus reveals what holds up the laws, what holds up these clothes, He crafts for us a beautiful picture of our hearts, which, um, I'm sorry, the core of who we are, with our minds aligned to him, our will aligned with his. Blessed are the poor in spirit, said Jesus. We come to him woefully empty-handed. We need his mercy, we need love, we need forgiveness, and only he can offer these. His life gives us new life and the power to live it. Blessed are those who mourn, said Jesus. We're not good. Our sin tears us up when we realize that. We're dirty and we're broken and we're tired and we don't want to see it, but we do. But Jesus takes us anyway. And he transforms our filthiness into beauty and into something useful. Blessed are the meek, said Jesus. And last week in preteen, one of the 10-year-old boys had a really good definition of meek. We were talking about um, God showing up in the burning bush, and I asked, what do you think it says about God that he chose fire in a burning bush to to introduce himself to Moses? And one guy says, he said this, he said, "Um, God controls his power, and he looks gentle. He's in a bush, and it's not being consumed. But But he said, he can be dangerous. That's our God. He controls his power, and he looks dangerous, or he looks gentle, but he can be dangerous. And then after that question was answered, the boy continued talking, and he said, but don't get him angry. So I I keep that in my Bible. Next, Jesus hangs the clothes on this correctly drawn, correctly positioned human form. And when the clothes hang the way that they're designed to fit the body, they can function appropriately. And when we're on the inside and we're wearing clothes that are custom-made for us, or i got a microphone that I'm used to, the authenticity, I'm sorry, the authenticity of a Christ-focused life rings true inside us. We don't have to worry about what's happening with the clothes. We don't have to be conscious of them. They move with us. They breathe. They don't pinch. They don't bind. They just move. They do what they were made to do. And I don't have to think, can I raise my hand? Do I have to tuck something in? Is it long enough? Does it fit? Does it hurt? Does it chafe? The clothes move with us. They respond to our movements because they were made for this. When we turn to Jesus, we see that the way that the world lives is insubstantial. The way that we lived doesn't work anymore. It looks now to us from this different stance inside these new clothes. It looks temporary or hollow. 
And when we know for sure, then we've experienced that Jesus loves us thoroughly. We don't need to grab stuff for ourselves. A different cry begins to rise up inside of us. And instead of the old things, like I want, or I need, or I have to be first, or what if there's not enough for me? Because we've experienced enough, we've experienced the excessive abundance of Jesus, our longings can turn outward toward others. We have enough reserve to see others. We recognize in them the need that we once had. And inside this realigned body, deep down in our hearts, a God-given compassion is now born. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's that? That's new. And mercy. We ache, but we ache to live fully for Jesus and to share with others what we experience with him. We're We're redrawn, our clothes fit, and we want to take on this big world. But just before Jesus moves on to describe this life in practical terms, how to and what it's going to look like out there, he gives us one more blessed R, and it's a tough one. Last week, we stopped just short of it. This week, we start just on the other end of it, but it's here, and you're going to hear it. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing pretty about persecution. I mean, even the word, it sounds like, electrocution. I mean, it's not a, not a pretty kind of a sound. But Matthew's word, his use of the word, is, is more aggressive than that. It chases something. It goes after someone. It has an intent to harass or to oppress. It's a really active word. So I looked it up in the English dictionary, and Merriam-Webster agrees with what Matthew says, and it gives a reason. They continue, and they say persecution causes to suffer, Because of a belief. So there's a reason for persecution. You don't have to walk around there maybe and just get randomly persecuted, though maybe it feels like that. Something that you believe or stand for makes somebody else uncomfortable or hostile toward it, and they're going to chase you down and persecute you because of that. And yet Jesus is even more specific. Harassment and oppression will come, he says, when you are righteous before God. The Greek word dikaiosune describes right standing before God fully justified, living as God wants us to, but remember this, only because of his grace and through his strength can we do that. Now, if you look at your Bible, the verses before this, Jesus kind of kept it, those who or those are or these guys, kind of kept it in the third person. He said, blessed are those guys, the poor in spirit. Blessed are those guys, the ones who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Don't even really know what that one means, right? We don't use it. Those who hunger, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So maybe up till now we've been able to sit back kind of at a safe distance, nodding our heads, choosing what applies to me and then the things that I know apply to someone else, like my, my husband, right? But now, no longer, Jesus looks right at us, and when he gets to this persecution part, he takes away the those who, and he says, you. He says, blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So there is a because of, and it's Jesus, but he's not like, oh yes, some of you guys are going to get that, and those who are persecuted might experience this. He says, these are the things that make you a follower of me. These qualities, these characteristics, and the inner longings of you are going to describe a child of God. Expect this. He says, you guys, Persecution is out there, and you're going you're gonna to experience it. But why? 
Come on, love and mercy and hunger and mourning and thirsting for righteousness, that to me sounds universally appealing, right? I mean, who wouldn't want that? How come, before we even walk out the door, there's these insults and persecution and false accusation for being the good guy, for mercy, for righteousness, for peace? Does this make sense? Wouldn't everybody want this for our world? But Jesus says, don't be surprised. In fact, he continues, he says, in fact, rejoice. So think about it. Light and salt, which he's going to ask us to be, exposes, light exposes. Being a follower of Christ is kind of like if you're the guy walking up the down escalator. So if you're going the other way, it causes everybody else some inconvenience, right? Or there's another thing that happens. If I'm going down the escalator and I'm not thinking about it, but a guy comes up the other way, even if just for a minute it makes me wonder, maybe, 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 maybe he's right. Maybe I've been doing it wrong all those times. And that, people, that makes people unsettled. And that can make them kind of angry at you. And you know what? It's going to make them question their own direction. And if their own direction is wrong, and if they've had to convince themselves or sell themselves a story or sell sin to themselves, they are not going to like brushing up against righteousness. They're not going to want to notice somebody going the other direction. They're not going to want to question what they've been doing. The Apostle Paul says the very same things. And at the end he says, he says, be careful how you live. But also remember this. Persecution is being oppressed because of God's righteousness, because of his definition of righteousness. A consequence brought on by just foolish behavior or mistreating someone, even in the name of righteousness, basically if you're being a jerk, that's just a consequence. That's, just, that's, not, that's not persecution. And Paul says, be very careful how you live. Jesus says, know that you're in good company when persecution comes. Prophets of old, men and women who loved God and spoke his words, were regularly chased down for proclaiming his messages. And even as Jesus spoke, this is right out, of the, right, out, right out of the gate in Matthew. As he spoke, he knew, and you and I with the luxury of time, know that Jesus could see events lining up that were going to lead to his own death, to his own unjust death. So Jesus says, expect it. You're in good company. So, wow. Our freshman excitement has been tempered by this sober reality of what's waiting for us out there. So how can I... A transformed sinner, constrained by this body that gets tired and hungry and sick and broken down. How can I even have a hope of affecting my weary world, even if my clothes fit? So that brings us to salt. In verse 13, Jesus said, you are, he stays in this, in this second person, you are, not those who, but you are, you're my followers, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't talk about those who are salty. He says, you are. So the salt of the earth, okay, I'm Jesus' follower. I'm a little bit of a mineral that fits through the holes of a salt shaker. I need a little bit more clarification. He says, you're the salt of the earth. Okay, so I'm a little grain of salt, and I'm expected to cover the whole earth. So bear with me for a minute. I've got six sons. I realized if I only just talk about them as if they're one, it's a very gifted son. But this one... When our six sons were small, we attended Lake Avenue Church. And week after week, we would attempt to get here on time, 
And when we did, and that would test my, my skills as a team leader, when we did, we would have to then you know, deal out these kids to various buildings and then various ministries within the buildings and, and various rooms in the ministries in the buildings. And then we would go to church and, and our small group, and then at the end of the morning, should we survive, and that's its own story, but should we survive the morning, we would go and do it, the whole thing in reverse order. And we would pick up the six kids. I would try to remember, because I'm the laundry person in the family, to take the stickers off the back of the shirts before they go in the laundry. And then we would walk across campus trying to look like we had it together. We would pile onto the shuttle bus, which went the wrong way to get right there, but we were tired, so we did it. And then we would fall into our car. So now it's kind of near 1 o'clock, and this has been a long morning, and if it wasn't communion, we were still hungry. So we're all starving, and fortunately, between this church and my house is a Carl's Jr. restaurant. So we supported the local business, and we went to this Carl's Jr., and after the humiliation, which I signed up for week after week, of, of ordering so many special order hamburgers, you know, like... No, no mayonnaise, no, no, no onions, no, no, just the meat and the bun. No, just cheese and the meat and the bun. After all that, I would go and join all the other guys in the booth. And now there's nothing to do but wait. So, you know, Carl Jr., it's a, it's a real restaurant. It's like a real restaurant because a guy comes and they give you your food like a real waiter or a waitress. So, and it is a fast food restaurant, and that's true, and in real chronological time, it doesn't take very many minutes for them to bring the, the hamburgers, even if you've got to scrape off the, you know, the dreaded ketchup. It doesn't take that long. But when I'm crowded into a booth at the end of a long morning with six little boys who are kicking their legs and waiting, it seems like forever. And I promise you, I cannot think of which boy it was, but they are, they are gifted. One of my kids, one week, took the salt shaker, which is sitting down at one end of the table, visually complimenting the chrome napkin holder. He took the salt shaker, and he shook it out onto a napkin, because we're sterile, onto a napkin, and then he licked his finger and put it onto one grain of salt. Picked up, you've done this. Picked up the grain of salt and touched it to his tongue. Brilliant, we thought. So then, of course, it became a trend, and everybody at, the, at our table had to do it. And I was hungry, too, and I was bored, so I joined in, and I licked my finger, and I put it down on one grain of salt, and I picked it up, and I put it in my mouth, and just as you touch it to your tongue, it dissolves. And if your stomach hasn't been doing anything for the last six or seven hours, everything comes alive. This little piece of salt is like a pop rock. And it fills your mouth, and it gets the juices going, and guess what? Your brain is like, hey, it's food, sort of. It's not really food, but it's kind of like the promise of food. And the marvel of this exercise was the economy of this minute piece of salt. Our mouths fooled our stomachs, if temporarily, into thinking that we were consuming actual food. From long before Jesus' time, salt was valued for its ability to keep food from rotting and to season it. People attributed all kinds of qualities to salt, and some were true. A rabbi named Ron Goldberg notes the Bible's use of salt as a metaphor. Listen to the different ways that it's used only in the Bible. Salt signifies permanence, loyalty, durability, usefulness, value, and purification. It was also used as a component of ceremonial offerings and as a unit of exchange. I kept poking around and looking it up. Turns out that salt is related to our word salary. It came from the Latin something, salary something, salarium. And it was related to, I guess, that some of the payment of a soldier was salt. 
So he was getting paid in salt. The word salary came from it. If you think about taking something with a grain of salt, they thought that it was medicinal or that if you had some food and maybe there was some poison in it, if you take it with a grain of salt, it's going to be okay. Interesting. You talk about being worth your salt. Salt had some value. I don't know how much salt a person would be worth, but at 1 o'clock on a Sunday, I would have paid money for it. So our bodies need salt. Now, salt can sit in a box for a long, long time, but it's of no benefit unless it's put to use. You are the salt of the the world, says Jesus. Jesus says we're to pour out over the earth. We might be outnumbered, but a little bit of salt goes a long way. Our world is decaying. Our people are rotting. In Pasadena alone, daily I travel past schools that lack resources but have an overabundance of kids. I pass the metro stations that are filled with people going who knows where. I pass people standing out on the street with nowhere to go, and it just seems like there's never enough of whatever it is for whoever needs it. Jesus says to spread out. Don't clump together, which is kind of an interesting thought because salt clumped together, it'll burn your mouth. You're going to have to spit it out or dissolve it, you know, um, water it down with a whole lot of drink in you. You've got to wash it out or something. And salt doesn't have to perform. It does some cool things, but it doesn't have to do anything. Like we don't put salt on food and, and, and see a show. It doesn't grow. It doesn't foam. It doesn't turn colors. Just, it just has to be salt. And then the stuff that it comes in contact with is affected because it came in contact with salt. Even watercolor paint responds to salt. This is worth opening the little art drawer at home and trying tonight. If you make a little wash of watercolor, so you got a puddle of water, and you take some salt and just pour it on top, I don't care if it's clumped or not, if you sprinkle it, the color, the pigment, is going to be attracted to the salt. And it makes this little intricate kind of like frost pattern on the paper. Then when it's all dry, you just kick off the salt. You brush off the salt, and it, and it looks like you did something amazing. But the artist, that's us, we didn't do anything. The salt did all the work. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. I made you the salt of the earth. You don't have to figure out how to be salt or how to do salt. Just be salt, but get out there and do it. He says, don't hide away. Don't have clubs of salt. Don't scrape together all the salt and put it in one place. He says, spread out. Then he goes on and says, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's a conundrum. It's no longer good for anything, says Jesus, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Honest to goodness, sodium chloride salt, like you and I know today, doesn't ever lose its flavor. So what's he talking about? Turns out that they would get salt from salt marshes. It would be a compound, a mineral compound that had salt in it and some other minerals. Well, if this glob, and I don't know if that's a scientific word, but if this glob of salt mineral compound got wet or damp, the actual salt, the sodium chloride part, would dissolve and leach away. And everywhere I looked, you guys, salt leaches away. It doesn't dissolve and go away or wash. It leaches away. So it's this beautiful, nasty little picture. The salt escapes. So you've got salt-free salt. And Jesus has zero tolerance for salt-free salt. It's just not useful to him. He says it's going to be discarded, trampled underfoot, disregarded. If you are his follower, you're salt. So be salt. Jesus calls us something else as well. He says we're light. You are light of the world. Again, he speaks directly. You are. 
not to a select few. Those of you who might be light. He says, nope, you are light. I can see you. You're light. Okay, we're not the source of light. We're not the light. That's Jesus' job. He's the light. He's the light of the world. But we are his. And so we, we, we reflect his glory. We show others who Jesus is. We are reflected light. And as reflections of the light of Jesus, we illuminate our world. I don't think I can think of a bad connotation for the word illuminate. It's just one of those words that's a happy word. If you have a bad connotation, let me know. But I think in general, illuminate just glows and it oozes and it peeks out and it escapes and it can't help but be what it is, which is light. Paul says that we expose darkness, but that leads to change, right? Or persecution. Light also draws attention. And I wonder if sometimes we just don't feel up to being light. When my kids were little, buying shoes was a big deal, especially if they were new for you, right? And when one of my guys was about three years old, it was his turn to get new shoes. And I was holding his hand, and we were walking, probably pay less, out of the store, walking around the sidewalk to get to our car. And he, he whispered up to me, he goes, Mom, everybody is looking at my new shoes. And these weren't even the light-up ones. He just knew... They can see me. This is embarrassing, but I'm just going to hold my head straight and go on to the car. Inside of his new shoes, his feet felt different. His toes and the upper part of his body that were balanced inside these little shoes with a brand new Velcro, you know, no dirt on the bottom yet. That's our favorite. They felt different. Every time this little boy took a step, he was conscious that something had changed. And so for him, he was very, very sure that everybody else was like, oh, my goodness, that boy's got new shoes. Mildred, did you see that little boy? He's got new shoes. Interestingly, this boy loves new shoes to this day. So, Anyway, Jesus says, we are the light of the world. We're conspicuous. A city set on a hill, says Jesus, cannot be hidden. We are Mount Wilson. He said, have you ever tried to hide a light? If you think about it, everybody has some history or claims to, because Henry Huggins did it, right? To read a book in, at, at night in your bed with a flashlight. Why are you reading under the covers? It's because you know you're supposed to be asleep and you don't want your mom or dad to see that the light's on. But it's hard. Have you noticed that it makes the, the, um, the blanket glow? You can see very clearly that there's a light on. Light wants to get out. Hey, have you ever wonder why it's not okay now to text during a movie? I mean, texting doesn't make noise, right? It's silent. But it's that light. Just the light is distracting from this giant picture up on front. That little light is distracting from what's going on. You kind of have to look, you know? I wonder what's happening over there. That interesting, so that is not okay anymore. Light tries to get out. Light wants to get out. It's always looking for a door. Like if you crack, just crack a door. If you don't have, if you don't have it completely closed, that light's just going to spread out. My dear college roommate attracted unusual people. So kind of people who were the, the outer fringes of the college you know, campus, would find my roommate, and they would just show up at the door, and they would knock at our door, and then she'd open it, and they would wait for her to do all the work, like say something to me. So one night I came home from a night class, and I thought she was gone because the room was completely dark, and I had to push the door open. Turns out my room, my roommate was working. We were art majors. She was sitting under her desk on the floor. She had taken this little floor mat that usually stayed somewhere, rolled it up, and shoved it under the door. She was trying to block the light so that these guys wouldn't come and knock on her door and wait for her to entertain them. It's hard to hide light. 
Jesus says that people don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. They put it on a stand so that it's going to give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds, but really they want to see your good deeds that glorify the Father. Remember, this light doesn't originate in us. Jesus says, go ahead. Be conspicuous. Wear your new shoes around town. Live your life out loud. Follow Jesus out there, out in the open. Be who you are out there where others are. Bring the light of Jesus to our dark world. Salt and light might seem small and innocuous in contrast to the huge number of problems, the things that need to be changed in our world. Maybe being salt or maybe reflecting the light of Christ even makes you feel anxious, like, oh, great, there's two more things i got to do every day. got to be salt and reflect Jesus' light. Or maybe you look at the world, then you look at the salt, then you look at the world, and you look at the light, and you think, whatever. And I know about whatever. I say whatever when I already know that whatever it is, I can't solve. Hey, go talk to so-and-so. Yeah, whatever. Like, I may or may not talk to them because it's not going to work. Whatever it is isn't going to happen. Maybe that's the way you feel. But Jesus himself chose tiny salt and weightless, wonderful light to describe his people participating in his life together. He says, be, but be out there. I know a young woman who grew up in this community, and she's a beautiful picture of salt and light. It's just who she is. It's who she has always been. As an adult, she is exactly the logical extension of who I knew her to be when she was a little girl. Kelly is the third child in this family of extremely competent people. I used to think that my family existed so that these guys had someone to win against in the competitions, because you can't win if it's just you guys. She is good at a great many things, but none of the things she is good at are really a big deal to her. All the kids in this family attended the Pasadena Public Schools along with mine. That's how I know them. From kindergarten all the way up through high school graduation. And Pasadena Public Schools have a reputation, and some of it's earned, for some tough times. And some of these schools are right next door to nice private schools that arguably have a cushier demographic and maybe some better resources. And I always wondered if Kelly ever questioned that she was, the, that she was here and, and not next door. But I don't think she ever did. And it looked to me, somebody else's mom, that God's favor just rested on Kelly wherever she went. But then I thought maybe it was that wherever Kelly went, she reflected the glory of Jesus, and it came off as favor. I mean, she had some great teachers, and she had some that weren't very effective. When there were opportunities where there were not opportunities, she would make one or she would find another way. She was really kind of undeterred. In elementary school, once she decided she wanted to learn to tap dance, that's not part of her curriculum. Her mom found her a teacher, and Kelly learned to tap dance. Turns out that there was later in that year a uh, talent competition right here in Washington Elementary School, and Kelly decided, I am now going to enter the competition. And during this competition, her mom said, Kelly lost her balance and fell. She was in the fourth grade. She just picked herself up and kept going. And needless to say, which is why I chose this story, right, she won that competition. That's Kelly. Kelly is meek. She appears to be quiet. If she was here now, you'd go, oh, I wonder who that quiet person is there. Maybe I should talk to her because she's quiet. But it's a quiet and bold strength. She tells people about Jesus wherever she is. Five years ago, 
Just before her and her brother's spring break, they were in different UCs. Kelly's dad died completely unexpectedly. These kids had to come home, know that their dad had died. They had to go back to, um, to their finals, and then they came home and had the services. It was, it was brutal. And then just a few weeks later that summer, Kelly joined our children's ministry staff. And we were out in the neighborhood um, all the time. So Kelly came out as the rest of the team, came out to the neighborhoods with us. And we hung with kids, and we did programs with kids, and we were at schools with kids. And Kelly decided, even though her pain was completely fresh and just a huge open wound, that she wanted to share her story. And you know how you are when you're around someone with grief, like, ooh, I don't want to talk about it. Well, she already knew. Turns out she knew that her dad had died. She didn't have to, you know, it wasn't going to make it worse if someone reminded her of it. And in her grief, she shared her story. And you know what? She shared it with kids who know about hurt. Kelly was completely effective and made a direct connection. At the end of high school, she, she went to UCLA, and, I, and I'm sure she could have done anything that she wanted because she can. And at the end of this, I'm sure that her heart was turned during those four years. But at the end of her four years, she made kind of a countercultural career decision. And instead of doing whatever it was that would make her successful and rich, she stayed at UCLA, and she's on the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship staff. And Kelly is not somebody who just sits inside the four walls and, and makes PowerPoints about songs so that people can come together and sing. Kelly lives all over that campus. Kelly's involved with hundreds of students' lives, and I'm sure that there are several or, or dozens with whom she interacts really personally. She's out in the, um, in the dorms. She, we just sent her one of our summer staff this year, and I said, you got a new freshman. She's already connected with her. Kelly spends her summers doing missions trips. She took a group to Turkey this summer. It's just who she is. I asked her if, I could, if it would be okay with her if I shared this story, and she said, yeah, but make sure that I tell you guys that it's not all peaches and cream and that she says it's all God's glory. She gets stressed. They're under-resourced like everyone else. She gets tired. But the thing about Kelly is if she was just standing in a room at UCLA, I know that she would reflect God's glory. I just know that who she is is a reflection of him. Now, Kelly did not give up the special Kellyness in order to serve Christ. She didn't sacrifice who he made her to be, like, ooh, I could have been a math guy. She is Kelly serving Jesus. She is a beautiful reflection of him. Light wants to get out. Light wants to shine. You don't have to make it shine. Just let it out. Now, all these many years later, God is still working through the same plan that Jesus was introducing to these people a couple thousand years ago. In obedience to his Father, Jesus set aside his rights as God. He put on human skin, and he stepped into time and space. He finished his saving work on the cross, defeating the enemy and death. And then he, he gave us the charge and the strength to carry on his mission, to share the gospel with his world. He charges and empowers us to do this. And once that we've received from him and once we've tasted from him, we can be, we are salt and light. And we are set free to live as salt and light. And this is what I want you guys to remember. It's not just a hard road, like, okay, I've got to be salt and light. There's something about connecting with Jesus that springboards you. You're not just barely making it, but you are fully you. You can breathe deep. It's a wonderful thing. And we can fill this decaying world with joy and light. Now, here's what I'd like you to consider. And you might think it's cheesy, and, and it would be, you would be correct. But without asking for a show of hands, 
I'm guessing that a whole lot of you have probably experienced the wonder that is a disco ball. And fortunately for you, I found one. And frighteningly, these are very easy to find. They're everywhere. Now, the cool thing about a disco ball, and you can go ahead and turn off the lights if you want. The disco ball is a cheap and inexpensive product because all it is is like a sphere of, I don't, is that, is that so cool? I just love this. It's just a ball with these little pieces of mirror that are glued around the ball. And look, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't make any noise. It just reflects something that is external. It needs a light source. I was told, actually, that it needs a powerful and focused light source. I think that's theology right there. But look at this. Because all of these little squares are going slightly different directions, that's you and me, you guys. It's not an army of squares all made into a grid. Everybody's going their own direction. Everybody has a little bit, a little different reflection of the glory that is Jesus. Look what happens. The lights dance. And I know that you're trying to be polite because this is church. But doesn't this make you want to kind of... Seriously, does it not? And that's what I want you to know about the light. Like being with Jesus, connecting with him, and, and if, when he is my external light source, I'm not being light. I'm depending on that. That's doing all the work. I'm kind of hanging in the breeze. But when we do it together and you see the dance that it creates, isn't it wonderful? Don't you have to use a word like wonderful? So that's what I'd like to remember tonight. So tonight when I say to the glory of God, I'm saying let's reflect the glory of God. Thank you guys.